This is a spoiler warning. We are going to spoil the episodes discussed in the show. It's also a free-flowing discussion. We're going to spoil pretty much most of the show aired to date. Uh, we'll do our best not to spoil any of the big finish range other than the episode that's discussed, but you are warned. Problem is, Perry, we are faced with a conundrum wrapped up in a dilemma. Hello, and welcome to The Twin Dilemma, a Doctor Who fan podcast. Each episode, we take a look at two episodes of Doctor Who. One is classic, one's a new Who. We tell you indisputedly, undoubtedly, which one is best. Those are the twins. That's the dilemma. I am your co-host, Fenric Lamar. And I am Edward Grove. Let me ask you a personal question, Edward. What's your deepest, darkest fear? Oh my gosh. I guess it's that, like, my sexuality is too strong. Okay. <laughs> you know? Like you're afraid of like women like coming just seeing you I mean, or not, something? Not just women. I mean, I know, you know, it's just like, it's just that it's like a force that might become like an energy and then it might start to like be like radiation essentially. This and, could like, be an episode of Doctor Who. Yeah, well, Torchwood really. It, yeah, it almost <laughs> was an episode of Torchwood. <laughs> the reason I ask is because this week we're starting a special trilogy that we've got going on about phobias. Oh, I guess my answer was really off topic and inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not so much of a, a real phobia. I don't think doctors diagnose that one. It's real to me. This week, our first phobia is going to be arachnophobia. Yeah, spiders are pretty pretty spooky. I don't like the creepy, crawly, fuzzy occasionally, always with the eyes and the legs and the biting. They've got a lot of eyes. They've got a lot of all the bad things. <laughs> it's true. And we'll kick it off this week with our entry from Classic, Planet of the Spiders. You took the one last perfect crystal of power. I searched all time and all space for it. I must have it. No. No, never. <laughs> you are proud, little man. I see that I shall have to teach you to have respect. In the third Doctor's final adventure, a race of psychic mutant spiders from the planet Metabilis Three attempt to invade the Earth. Using their powers to control their victims, it's up to the Doctor and Sarah Jane Smith to face their fears and stop them. But as they will soon learn... Saving the world is one thing, but surviving the battle is quite another. So, Edward, what do you think of Planet of the Spiders? I think Planet of the Spiders has a lot of really neat things going for it. And so I'm left with kind of mixed feelings because it's also, in my opinion, is undeniably sort of boring. Yeah, I kind of land on the same spot. I think that there's really cool stuff, especially yeah. like stuff that you don't expect to see in classic. But then there's also like... You know, they, we throw around the word padding a lot. Like, this is like it was thrown into an insane asylum. <laughs> There's a lot of padding in this story. Yeah, it goes beyond padding into, like, fluff. I mean, almost the entirety of part two is just running after someone. It's a 12-minute chase sequence. <laughs> Did you time it out? Uh, well, yeah, I looked at the time code once it started because I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. It involves... Bessie, yep. the Who-mobile, a weird helicopter, yep. uh, a hovercraft. Yeah, you got to get that hovercraft in there. A boat, 
for no reason. Yeah, I wondered at times, like, did Pertwee, you know, it was his last story. Did he just ask, can you put me in a story with as many vehicles as possible? <laughs> <laughs> but cram them into one half of one part. Well, it's also like it ends in a really cool way. I like the moment when he finally catches up to him and then he just disappears. I hate that moment. Why do you hate that I, moment? I, every single time, even though I know it's coming, I physically react with, well, okay, thanks. That's, that's thanks the for the last 12 part. minutes. But see, to me, I wonder if they didn't like that. They had that idea of like, oh, that's cool. And they were like, well, that should obviously be an act out. So then let's add 10 more minutes of chase <laughs> so we can have it at the end of an episode. Well, that's the thing is like, you know, he could have teleported if he just concentrated at any point. There was no point for the chase sequence. Oh, yeah. I mean... Together, it doesn't work. <laughs> but as a, as a, like a nice moment, like Pertwee's reaction is really good in a vacuum. It's okay. a fun little moment. That's fine. As a payoff to from. a full episode, it's Blue Ball City. Especially because like this chase sequence is like started off just by the main bad guy, sort of for like the first half of this story. Yeah, is a it's Lupton. quite an odd name, Lupton. Lupton, yeah. who looks like an evil Carl Sagan. He does look kind of like an evil Carl Sagan. Yeah, yeah. he wears like the same like twee jackets he looks like a a a a wax carl sagan that was left out in the sun (laughs) his hair is much droopier he's droopier overall oh another weird thing about this race is lupton steals this boat yes yeah and the doctor runs up and steals this hovercraft and sarah jane is with him and they're running up to the hovercraft cut to him on the hovercraft she's gone yeah she just gets that too he just like i'm just picturing him like goodbye sarah jane yeah (laughs) she's like but i want he's like boom close line (laughs) hovercrafts of a men sarah jane (laughs) a hovercraft sarah jane i don't think so (laughs) super weird moment at like the very beginning in part one it we when we first see the brigadier and the doctor they're at some like kind of uh i don't know exotic it's like, more like sh- a vaudeville. Show. Yeah, yeah. But like, okay. So we cut back to them and they're like clapping because they just saw a show. They clearly saw some kind of exotic dancing. You enjoyed that? Extraordinary muscular control. Very fit, that girl. I must adapt some of those movements as exercises for the men. They take some adapting. And when I first started, I was like, did he just make a joke about cutting off the brigadier's dick? Whoa, where did you get that? Because he says like, uh, you know, I, I would love to adapt that. I think that's the word he uses. And then the doctor says like, yes, you'd need quite an adaptation. Yeah, I think what he's saying is it would take quite a bit to get the unit soldiers to do whatever, you know, ping pong ball shooting out of her vagina <laughs> that they just saw. Whatever donkey show they just witnessed. He's saying Benton can't deep throat that much donkey cock yet. <laughs> Either way, it's a weird exchange. But I actually say that moment weirdly stands out as one of my favorite moments in all of Classic. Just them being friends? Yes. Growing down? Well, that's actually exactly it. Almost verbatim in my notes, (laughs) right? Because to me, one of the most special things about the Doctor and the Brig, he's kind of more than a companion. He's the closest the Doctor, I think, has ever had in the whole series to a human peer, where they're actually friends. Mm Mm-hmm. But they really are, at that moment, just watching some weird vaudeville show and talking about this <laughs> amusing woman <laughs> that did some disgusting act in front of them. <laughs> There's another great moment where the Brigadier just has great delivery. This will probably lead us into the whole regeneration aspect of the storyline. The doctor is dying in front of them, and there's this monk 
name uh, Shoji, who just shows up in front of them. No, it's Choji. I mean, it looks like Choji, but it is really Campo Rinpoche. I think. Thank you. That makes everything quite clear. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it takes him about uh, maybe three to five seconds after the doctor dies in front of him to crack a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was weird because he doesn't actually have that much to do in this episode. No, I feel like there are whole parts he's like not even there. Because Unit isn't that involved. Ironically, you know, there's plenty of room for Mikey Yates and Sergeant Benton. That's true. Normally, they throw up some kind of fucking force field or some shit out there where it's like, the Unit Jeeps can't get past this for some reason. And this time it's like, Unit got infiltrated and they're just there to chill about it for no reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's weird because they all identify Lupton. And they know what's up, and they're just like, ah, bah, 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 what are you going to do? <laughs> he, he Sith lightninged a few of our guys. Yeah, it happens. I do love that lightning noise. I love the Sith lightning thing. I will say, I wish there was a little bit more consistency in how lethal it was or wasn't. It one-shots the doctor, and then for some reason, Tommy can take about 10,000 shots of that thing. Well, uh... Kanpo or whatever. What's his fucking name? Well, he's Choji and Kanpo, and they're the same guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Ka- Kanpo is who he really is, right? And Choji is just like a fake version of but him. But then he becomes yeah, Choji. Yeah. yeah. But then he says, no, I'm Kanpo. So, yeah, but fuck him. <laughs> uh, but he, he explains that Tommy is able to, like, avoid the lightning because he has, like, this psychic barrier of innocence. That doesn't make any fucking sense. I know, but it's a, it's, at least there's a line addressing it. The weirdest one is he says, like, Mike was able to survive it because of his passion. <laughs> <laughs> and so the doctor's just got nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Since you insisted on jumping all the way to the very end of the episode to the regeneration, let's talk about it. And so, you know, we talked earlier about the ridiculous chase scene, but despite any gripes that I might have about the third Doctor era, three has some really classy final moments. Tia? Sarah Jane? Uh, no, don't cry. While this life is... Yeah, I, I love his final exchange with Sarah Jane. I think he's got some of the best final dialogue that any doctor has. I love that, you know, this story starts with him literally going to see a donkey show or something. <laughs> he's just Yes, literally that. That's canon. <laughs> he's just relaxing. And then by the end, you know, he basically gets told by Kampo, the only way that you will win this fight against the spiders is if you go into this place and die. Yeah. And he's like, all right, well... Here I go. Yeah, this felt a bit more like a new who regeneration in some ways, where in a lot of classic regenerations, it always seems like the doctor gets sidelined. Whereas in new who, most of the time, it feels like the doctor knows this is going to be the end. Yeah, there's a lot of premonitions. Yeah. Uh, another thing I thought was interesting about this one, it feels like it's the first time where they were trying to celebrate the era. Mm. You know, they were jamming it full of stupid car chases <laughs> and... Uh, there's there's some pretty good Venusian Aikido moments. I was thinking about that. It's like, if you love the era, you probably love part two. Yeah. You're probably just jerking it that whole time. Just like, oh, it's a fucking helicopter now? Oh, and it's weird and tiny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is like a requirement for John Bertwee. Yeah. It has to be weird. It's got to be weird and tiny. And, oh my God, the Who-mobile can fly! 
<laughs> I finally can finish. <laughs> I do agree. It's a celebration of the era. And I think even though moments after you have this really sweet dialogue, you have a weird space monk floating in the room. <laughs> it doesn't completely undercut the sweetness of that moment. I think that dialogue that John Pertwee has in his final moments is so good. Well, Shoji is my favorite part of this episode. Yeah, but he's goofy as fuck in that scene. Yeah. Oh, he's always, he's always like a little weird, especially because, you know, he's doing uh, Tibetan face. Tibetan face. I have to say, I've always wondered why this episode didn't get more shit <laughs> versus like, say, Talons of Wang Chiang, which anytime I, that comes up, it's talked about as, uh, you know, being They actually racist. changed the eyes in Talons. What, is, what does that matter? They're still playing different races. And this one has way more Orientalism. The whole the Buddhist culture is played as being this you know, weird cult that's, you know, they use Omani Padme Hum to summon spiders from an alien planet. <laughs> is that not what Buddhists do? <laughs> uh, so I want to ask you something because it's a little confused in the story and they give a very quick explanation that I was like, oh, is that what it's supposed to be? But I'm still not sure. What is your take on how humans got to Metabilis 3? Yeah, it's uh, they just took a rocket there or something, right? But is is your take on it that when we're traveling to Metabilis three from Earth, we're going into the future? Oh no, I just imagined that it was the future at that point. That this is like a like the Doctor is also traveling through time when he goes to Metabilis three. Yeah, see, because I was a little confused by that. Apparently, the novelization clarifies it and says that that's the case, but it doesn't seem like that's what the episode is telling you. Because there's a part where they quickly say that their ship arrived there after going through a time jump. 433 Earth years ago, their starship came out of its time jump with no power left and crashed on Metabilis 3. Oh, interesting. I so, will, maybe that's just future technology. I guess. Well, yeah. yeah, but at the time I just thought, oh, so it is supposed to be like just humans from the future who accidentally went to the past. Okay. Either way, that part could be clarified a little bit. However, I, I do really like the idea that the spider origin is basically they were just spiders that happened to be on our spaceship and then they ended up in this like cave with weird psychic radiation and then they became sort of sentient giant creatures. I do love the spider origin, but I do think it's odd to me that you know, these humans who are intelligent enough for space travel, then they got to Metabilis 3 and the radiation... Uh, you know, okay, the spiders were closer to it. They were in the cave and that radiation made them stronger. But somehow all the humans get completely brain dead and grow 70s porno mustaches <laughs> and yeah. turn into cavemen. <laughs> yeah, over time, with no access to the technology they're used to. I, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's fine. And the spiders with all that access to the technology. I just didn't understand why they went the route of having them be humans. I mean, I guess just to explain how the spiders got there, but just make them aliens and just make them alien spiders. So there's this whole storyline in this about how the doctor has to overcome his fear of meeting the great one. And it seems like he's got like a, a fear of spiders in general. What do you think about that? I thought it was really vague. Like they play it up in basically two moments when he's in this cave with the bad sort of green screen effect <laughs> where he's afraid and they say how it's a feeling he's not used to and then he has to go back there but that's sort of a thing that irks me in general is when they create an arc that's unwarranted you know yeah. and it, it felt very artificial and it didn't even feel like they didn't even put it in part one or something like that you know they, they waited pretty late to create it and pay it off in really just two beats 
Yeah, they should have had a moment in like part one where he's just like in a lab and there's a spider. And, and he shits himself. <laughs> I was saying he was going to whack it, but yeah. Well, he maybe he shits on it. Yeah. Oh, sh- I like, this is what you earthlings do, right? You, sh- you shit on spiders. <laughs> uh, I want to talk a little bit about Lupton. He's a real odd character in some ways. There's one moment in particular. He lays out his motivation for why he joined the monastery. Picture me. Bright young salesman. Salesman of the year, sales manager, sales director. I gave him 25 years of my life. Are you with me so far? Yes, yes. Then the finance boys moved in. Merger, takeover. Golden handshake, me, out on the streets. And basically he joined a monastery because he wanted power. I came here to get power. Do you think I'm going to let go now when it's in sight? When I can see myself taking over that firm, taking over the country. <laughs> well, it, it, presumably, the, like those that one ring of guys, right, that keep bringing the, the spiders there. Like, they knew about the spiders in some way. It doesn't seem like that at all. And how would you know about it outwardly? I mean, yeah, like, why did they go to the monastery to find the spiders? But... I have so many questions of like, what the fuck was happening at this monastery two weeks ago? <laughs> when it was just a normal monastery, like, it's so weird. Like, the, there's a moment where one of the fucking nameless 70s men who populate the <laughs> monastery, he hits Mike Yates on the head after he enters the room yeah. for no reason. Well, it was because he was eavesdropping. No, it wasn't. He comes in and they go, why did you hit him? And he's like, I don't. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> You know, he'd come in and he's like, listen, I've got a plan to figure it out. And they just hit him. And then once he wakes up, they untie him. What was their relationship 10 days ago when they were all just hanging out <laughs> trying to learn about mindfulness? So the, the spiders in this are called the eight legs and they are offended by the term spider. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought it was strange that like, like, that's fine. Like, that's a cool little world building thing. But I think it's weird that they refer to the humans as two legs. Like, mm. they think that leg count is the only thing that separates them. <laughs> oh, do you think it's a superiority thing? Like, yeah. the more legs, the better? Exactly. Yeah. We're yeah. not spiders. We just have eight legs. You're not humans. You guys only have two legs, though. Shit legs. They should just call them shit legs. <laughs> shit legs. <laughs> I want to know, like, if they, met, if they met a human in a wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, round two legs. Two wheels. Yeah. <laughs> fascinating round legs how where does that fit into our our system or they look at each spoke they'd be like oh so many legs <laughs> he must be their king yeah. now that we've discussed planet of the spiders let's talk some spider trivia spiders have eight legs oh did you know you know what i'm actually severely brain damaged and i didn't this was the first story to use the term regeneration to describe this Time Lord biological process. I always forget if it's this or robot. Because I know it's this this regeneration was the one where they say regeneration. Yeah, before they had always referred to it as a renewal or in the second doctor's case as, I think they just say you have to change your face. Or as it all kind of fucking happens off screen anyway, so yeah. what does it matter? This is also the only TV story to date to feature two Time Lords regenerating in it in oh, one story. That's interesting. So you've got a... Khan Po, as well as, of course, the third Doctor. It's so stupid that the 50th didn't have that in any of the Time War scenes. Yeah, that's that's all I want out of that, is just you see a Time Lord get shot, turn into another Time Lord, and then go on fighting. That would be so great. 
Tom Baker's appearance at the end of the story went completely uncredited. I wonder how common that is for the uh, classic regenerations. This story was actually shot at the same time as many parts of Robot, which is, of course, the fourth Doctor's first episode. This means that Liz Sladen and Nicholas Courtney had to be constantly running between sets and acting with two separate different Doctors. Wow, that's odd. Yeah. It's interesting because Robot does feel so much... Like, I actually don't think it feels as much like a Pertwee story as Tom Baker says it does, but it does still feel quite a bit like a Pertwee story. Tom Baker thinks that it's a Pertwee story? Yeah, he complained about that all the time, that they were still writing Pertwee stories for him, which I think he exaggerates a bit. It feels to me like they knew it was going in a different direction. Yeah, the moment when they're, like, introducing you to the fourth Doctor and he's doing that, like, running thing, you know, it's very silly and kind of um, almost immediately on board with who Tom Baker was. Even the line at the end of Planet of the Spiders... Choji says, uh, You may find his behavior somewhat erratic. Roger Delgado died in a car crash in June of 1973. Did you enjoy that trivia? I'm wondering what this has to do with Planet of the Spiders. <laughs> Had this not happened, a different story would have taken Planet of the Spiders' place. It was called The Final Game and featured one last battle with the Master, where the Master, A, sacrifices himself completely to save the Doctor, and B is revealed to be the doctor's brother. Oh, I remember hearing that they were they were going to reveal that he was the doctor's brother at some point. I think at multiple points in Classic, they were planning on pulling that card eventually. Yeah, and I'm glad that that never happened. It's not it's unnecessary. It does feel like that's sort of the one thing from the third doctor's era that was a real hallmark that is missing from the finale. Yeah. In the Virgin novel Love and War, written by Paul Cornell, it is revealed that three actually spent ten grueling years lost in the time vortex, slowly dying of radiation poisoning, before the TARDIS, quote, brought him home. Holy shit. Yeah. He does look very battered when he comes out of that thing. They did a good job of making him look very sickly. And his performance is really good. Yeah. But that's awful. What a mean book to write. (laughs) Paul Cornell, you seem like a nice man. And now we'll move on to our new who this week, The Runaway Bride. Question is, what did camouflage robot mercenaries want with you? And how did you get inside the TARDIS? I don't know. What's your job? I'm a secretary. Weird. I mean, you're not special. You're not powerful. You're not connected. You're not clever. You're not important. This friend of yours, just before she left, did she punch you in the face? After Donna Noble mysteriously appears in the Doctor's TARDIS, plucked from the middle of her wedding, she calmly and politely asks the Doctor to aid her in returning to Earth in time for the ceremony. But missing her nuptials is only the first of her concerns in this Christmas special written by Russell T. Davies. Soon, the Doctor discovers an ancient alien is scheming to snare Donna in its evil web. All right, so, Fenric, what do you think about the Runaway Bride? I do really like the Runaway Bride, despite it having Donna and being entirely about Donna. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's interesting to me because in my memory i always think of donna as being more different in this episode as being sort of a bit less likable more abrasive and then when i went back and watched it she's really not that different than she was later yeah i can see that there's obviously the change in the way that she thinks because now she has decided to actually travel with the doctor but yeah, I still I still find her hard to like. And I think there's even a moment where Ten pretty much just says, I don't like you. I mean, they hate each other right away. And you, you can't even really blame either of them, honestly. She's just been abducted by a strange man, <laughs> for all she can tell. And then it's 
unintentionally brutal what she does. You know, she pulls up this pair of clothing. Again, she basically is in a, a, a space rape fan <laughs> and she finds, finds women's clothing, uh-huh. right? So from her perspective, pretty reasonable. That's my friend. Where is she then? Hopped out for a spacewalk? She's gone. Gone where? I lost her. Well, you can hurry up and lose me! Yeah, and it was immediately, right after. Immediately. Because he gets into the TARDIS at the end of Doomsday, and he turns around, and Donna's there, and he goes, What? It's, it's the almost literal WTF ending of yeah. uh, Doomsday. I love David Tennant's performance in that little bit. Oh, Where yeah. she holds up the t-shirt to him. Yes. I, I mean, he was so good at that moment, that, like, that wounded yeah expression i do think that this episode gets bogged down a little bit by just you know he gets really whiny about rose in this episode like there's a lot of sequences of him being whiny about rose i agree although i honestly think it's worse in the subsequent episodes they decided to like hold on to that and have it impede him having a relationship with martha i think that was a bigger mistake yeah that's what people usually say is that they don't like martha because she was his rebound and i'm like i'm fine with that but this one it just felt too in my face So Donna's thrown into the TARDIS. She got abducted from her wedding. We talk a lot about how like the 10th Doctor is a very human doctor. Him and Five are probably like the most human doctors. But I noticed this time the goal immediately becomes we got to get her to her wedding, right? Mm -hmm. So immediately he jumps into like this very human panic mode Uh of like we need to get money. We need to get you in a cab. (laughs) You know, it was it was a very interesting performance that you can't see too many doctors doing. Well, I think some of that has to do with just the the kind of motivation you can get with Catherine Tate screaming at you <laughs> to do something. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that was the thing is like he gets he gets a cab, right? That moment with the cab driver is very funny, by the way. That's after they get ejected and then Donna just screams. And that goes double for your mama. <laughs> what the, what did she She's say? Like, to what him? did she say? I'm going to put it in your anus and that goes devil for your mother. Like, don't bring his mother into it. Surely her anus should be unmolested. Clearly, you don't know anything about his, her mother, his mother, whoever's mother. Surely you don't know anything about pronouns. Surely you don't know anything about mothers because they've all had it. Okay. <laughs> they've all had a devil in their anus. In their anal, yeah. In their anal. In their anal. <laughs> You're just having a fucking stroke right now. <laughs> But what I was going to say is, uh, so you know, he could have just shoved her into the cab and been like, there's a cab. He'll get you to your wedding. Goodbye. That could have been the ending of their relationship. But the fact that he jumps in the cab himself to make sure that he gets there, even though he he knows that afterwards he has to do the trek back across London back to find his TARDIS. I thought that was very touching. That's true. That's an interesting point. I guess it, it sort of speaks to how goal oriented he is. Because there's a, a different kind of theme in the episode where later on, once the mystery kicks in and his kind of like doctor mode activates, he has this thing where he and Donna are, have this sort of yin and yang situation, right? Where he's constantly missing her big picture and she's constantly missing his big picture. Mm-hmm. Where he can't really relate to the fact that she just found out the man that she's been in love with this whole time did not love her at all and she thought she was getting married and none of that's going to happen and all the things that are important in her life have evaporated and she can't relate to the fact that there's this alien menace and these huon particles and all these things that relate to the much larger universe 
have this greater significance to him. Yeah, fantastic acting from Catherine Tate in that moment where they jump back into the TARDIS after her husband is like, like brutalizes her verbally. Yes, yeah. And, you know, he's just going like, oh, we're going to do this. It's so exciting, blah, blah, blah. And then he looks over and she's just crying. Yeah. My absolute favorite part of this episode is the TARDIS throughway chase scene. That's so funny. I was going to ask what you thought and I thought you wouldn't like it. It's really impressive. Even yeah. today, like the CGI looks good. And it's like the first time, correct me if I'm wrong, first time we've ever really got to see the TARDIS used in that manner. Boy, I can't remember another occasion. And it certainly doesn't happen much ever. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a ton of fun. It's actually got like a nice sort of heart pounding bit of adventure to it. I think the little kids in the other car are very Restless Davies. Very yeah. fun. They're fun. It reminded me, uh, it made me think of the Eighth Doctor movie and think like, you know, Everything that's wrong about, like, everything that doesn't fit in Doctor Who about the Doctor riding on a motorcycle mm -hmm. is perfect the opposite in this sequence. I see what you mean. Sort of if that was uh, realized in a, a way that fit the show better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's also a nice moment that sort of caps that off. This one feels a little bit more intentional, but harshness from Donna. The Doctor saying, trust me, and saying, you know, jump from the cab, jump into the TARDIS. And Donna says... Did she trust you? Yes, she did. And she is not dead. She is so alive. Now jump! And I think that's also the beauty of Russell T. Davies, that he can, like, play with your emotions like that. You almost forget that she's alive for a second. Because, you know, you just think about how hurt he is. Yeah. You're like, oh, that hurts so much. And then he's like, she's fucking alive, and I did it. And you're like, oh, yeah, he did do it. For all intents and purposes, she's essentially dead. Yeah, yeah she's pseudo-dead. Yeah. She's this universe dead. She's dead to him. Yeah. <laughs> Which is all that matters. <laughs> Do you think that the TARDIS actually has like propulsion systems? I mean, I guess it must because it just did that. Oh, I was wondering like maybe it just materializes. Oh, like, like a stop really motion. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> if it was doing that, it's really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> because it could have done things much easier. You'd think like, uh, yeah, the, the TARDIS uh, matrix could just be like, all right, this is the exact moment where he'll catch her. Yeah. So I just need to be there. Yeah. That seems much simpler. <laughs> Shortly after that scene, the doctor and Donna are sort of recovering from her abduction by these uh, robots. And they're sitting on a rooftop and they're having a conversation. And that scene really foretells what to me is the single greatest strength of the 10th doctor and Donna's relationship. Which is because of the fact that they almost don't like each other at all. <laughs> and they explicitly have zero romantic chemistry they're able to be really open with each other in a way that friends can be. I spent Christmas Day just over there, the Palace Day, with this family. My friends had this family. Well, they were... Still. Gone now. That was a great scene. And it's really nice. And that's something where, like, I totally forgot about that scene. Like, in my mind, you don't get that side of their relationship until, like, late series four. So I want to share with you a, a little bit of a headcanon I came up with for, oh, this for both the, uh, of these, these episodes. This awesome saucy headcanon. The Rachnos is the enemy of this story. Big, uh, big spider lady. Indeed, the empress of the Rachnos. And the last one as well. Yes, sort of. Which, by the way, her effects look great. She's, uh, she's always been like one of my favorite alien outfits. I don't want to derail you, but I wanted to ask you what you, what you thought of the, the Rachnos and uh, her performance and everything. Yeah, I, I like that she tries something other than just being a human, you know, I in agree. a suit. I, 
Yeah, so I actually, I really like a lot about her performance, but I think it's very unfortunate that they sort of load her up with really shitty expository dialogue that makes it seem much worse than it is. The bride approaches. She is my key. You know, I didn't have a problem with the exposition with her, but there was a line that stuck out to me and I was just like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> Prepare your best medicines, Dr. Man, for you will be sick at heart. Yeah. They what give, does that mean? They give her bad dialogue. <laughs> it's no good. But anyway, getting back on the point. Back to the headcanon, the real reason to be here. So they talk a lot about like this history that the Doctor, or specifically Time Lords, have with the Ragnos. In fact, there's a great moment. My children may feast on Martin flesh. Oh, but I'm not from Mars. Then where? My home planet is far away and long since gone. But its name lives on. Gallifrey. I love that moment. So obviously they've got this history. So I was wondering, like, Maybe, you know, the third doctor has this phobia, this arachnophobia. Hey. Maybe that's because of like an ingrained Time Lord thing. Maybe they had a big war back in the day. In the same way that like they kind of naturally don't like vampires <laughs> because they had a huge vampire war. <laughs> I mean, that sounds, it sounds silly. I will say it sounds like the arachnos just took a, took a stomping from the Time Lords. Yeah, it definitely sounds like the, the Time Lords like... Yeah. One. Doesn't like one like they hard. Were, they were rivals. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, interesting. Yeah, interesting little idea to connect them. Uh, so I just wrote down a note that just says, the segue sequence is too retarded for words. <laughs> <laughs> I wish no one had told uh, Russell T. Davies about segues. So I have a question for you. Okay, I'm ready. First time you watched this, did you expect Lance to be evil? No. Uh, I think they did a decent job, especially in that moment where he's like creeping up on her with the axe. Yeah. And I think to me, honestly, the thing that sells it is he's so meek. Yeah. When they're in the elevator and stuff and he seems so like afraid of even breaking company policy. There's this joke where she's talking about how, you know, he pushed and pushed and then it cuts to her, you know, marry me, please marry me. please. Yeah. Right? So she's the driving force of their relationship. So it really doesn't seem like there's anything planned there yeah but at the same time that one little thing he got her coffee yeah Mm -hmm. there's just enough in there to be like this once it ties together it seems totally obvious that he was poisoning her and he's like he's a huge dick in this episode yeah but for some reason like for this time the the poisoning really got to me just the idea that he's like slowly poisoning her over six months with a huon particles yeah it's not very nice no Slightly rude, one could say. <laughs> you make an argument that but you it, maybe shouldn't do it. At least he made her coffee. <laughs> yeah, okay, never mind. He, should, he, just, he just should have asked, do you take it with you on particles? <laughs> you like a cream and Huon particles and sugar, right? And she's just like, whatever, marry me. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's that moment that's, uh, it's a really iconic moment from this, this episode where the doctor, you know, offers the Rachnos a chance to survive and they basically turn it down and then he pulls out all his tricks and is blowing them, blowing up these water he's mains. Blowing them. He's just blowing he's them. Blowing, he's blowing Rachnos dick and yeah, he's blowing them with these remote controlled ornaments yes, that were yeah. introduced earlier in the episode. 
And then they, you know, they got that iconic shot of him standing and looking at down on her with judgment and the water's pouring and his hair's all wet. And I, I was thinking, it's not nearly as effective when you realize that they cut off the shot just above the GameCube controller that he's holding. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I forgot is they really go nuts with the soundscape. They bring in this like intense percussion and stuff like that. There's like, uh, like just like, bum, 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 bum. Yeah, and I noticed uh, when they first go into the, like the Torchwood base in this one, they put in a little bit of Torchwood theme, which was kind of cool. Oh, that's cool. The Ragnar ship gets blown up by these tanks, and there's a quick line where somebody goes, you know, Mr. Saxon tells us to fire, right? Uh, and I was thinking, like, isn't the whole idea that the Master is hidden as a human, and that's why the Doctor says, there's no other Time Lords I'd be able to feel them. Uh-huh. But he's now on the same planet as the master fully time lord so shouldn't he feel him i mean i think that the whole he should be able to feel them thing i don't think that ever made sense (laughs) okay yeah it was it was it was only there clearly to be like for sure there are no more time lords but guys maybe there's another time Lord. (laughs) i do think without that name drop even with it it's a very slightly odd and undoctor who moment that the ship just gets blown up by some guys with a tank yeah, that was strange. Just like, up, oh, bloop. Because she essentially got away. Yeah, which was unnecessary. She could have just drowned down there. Mm-hmm. It was weird. They just wanted the, you know, big explosion. Yeah, and I get, they did need to get rid of the spaceship, but I guess, you know, eh, they could still really. just blow it up. They could have had it be a big star in the night sky and made it be Christmassy or something. I mean, that was kind of the premise, but it was it was very big. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have one more question for you, Fenric. My body is ready. And it's something I was thinking about watching this because obviously we know that Things were different when you look at the actual production. This was intended to be the only time Donna Noble would ever appear in the show. But within the universe, something in this story makes her change her mind. Because at the end, she refuses the Doctor. But she comes back and she decides she wants to join the Doctor. And she finds him in Partners in Crime. What moment do you think turns her around? I was just thinking that maybe uh, she'd run out of all the single black men in London. (laughs) So there's got to be some in space. There's a planet of the boys somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> I think it's probably when the doctor shows Donna the creation of the Earth. We've gone back 4.6 billion years. There's no solar system. Oh, yeah. Only dust and rocks and gas. That's the sun. Over there. Brand new. Just beginning to burn. Because all the other science fiction shit that she sees in the episode, she's kind of put off by or not paying attention to and just wants to get it over with. But in that moment when she's looking out the, the TARDIS and sees the Arachnos ship and everything, she actually seems to be genuinely in awe. Yeah, and she does say that it like humbles her and makes her really put her own wedding into perspective. Yeah, and you know, after that, obviously... You can see why you, your jets might get cooled by watching the doctor's bloodlust <laughs> as he's murdering this thing that's going, my children, my children. I'm now just mixture, picturing him up on that balcony like, like yeah, die, Ragnox. And he's just like jerking off yeah. violently. He's like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, drown, drown, baby, drown. Is that not in the episode? Well, it was implied, but we're, once again, cut okay. off at the bottom of the shot. That's right. Yeah, very important. He's got GameCube Critical. controller in one hand. Dick in the other. Dick in, fat dick in the other. <laughs> just drown in my cum. 
Oh yeah, I remember that that line. Yeah, <laughs> that's my favorite tenth doctor line. I remember uh, listening to the audio commentary and David Tennant being like, "I begged them not to make me say that," <laughs> and Russell T. Davies was like, "Oh, I had to have him say it." <laughs> He's got a weird accent. Yeah, I was gonna say. Now that we discussed Runaway Bride, let's run away to some trivia. Russell T. Davies had the concept for this episode from the beginning of his time with Doctor Who and planned to originally produce it during series two. The idea being a bride shows up in the middle of the TARDIS or? That's my guess. Okay. That seems like the the core RTD-ness of the episode. Uh, see, I love that they have that, you know, that what scene and then they kind of do a reprise of that when the Titanic runs into the TARDIS. Absolutely. That was like a surprisingly awesome motif for how simple it is. <laughs> for legal reasons, the 10 pound notes that fly out of the ATM feature the doctor's face and the phrase, I promise the bearer on demand 10 satsumas. That's amazing. Yeah, because you can't, you know, you can't counterfeit money, obviously. That would be make for a great collector's item. I was about to say, other fake bills were printed as well and are now collector's items if you're able to find them popping up online. In a cutscene, after the doctor snatches Rose's clothing from Donna, he throws it into space. The moment was ultimately deemed too melodramatic for a broadcast, which sounds right. I really thought this was going to be one of those famous Edward Grove fake trivias, and it was just going to be that, like, he started sniffing it or something. Oh. <laughs> no, that was actually in the episode. You just weren't paying attention. Oh, okay. I was too busy sniffing. Yeah, he, like, uh, he, that, he dangles it over his face when he's masturbating while uh, killing the Rachnos. <laughs> Howard Atfield, who played Donna's father, was set to return in Partners in Crime, but passed away shortly after completing the shoot. His scenes were reshot with Bernard Cribbins as Donna's grandfather, Wilf. Well, I do really like me some uh, some Bernard Cribbins, so. Yeah, I love Bernard Cribbins. I love Wilf, but it's sad for Howard Atfield. Yeah. I've always just completely forgotten Donna's she father. Had a dad, yeah. This episode is credited with the creation of the modern concept of the one-off companion. Though, of course, Donna would later return, and the role would be better exemplified by characters like Astrid Perth, Adelaide Brooks, and Jackson Lake. There's really no one before that? I guess not. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's interesting. You think of in classic, I think it mostly is due to the fact that the TARDIS was so stationary and the Doctor was a lot more bound to the story of the episode, typically. Yeah. You didn't have somebody who would like jump along for a little ride with the Doctor most of the time. Yeah, and of course they didn't really have specials. True dat, yo. All right, now that we've discussed both our episodes, it's time the dilemma. No, you have got to make a choice. So, Frederick Lamar, what's your pick? You know, this was a, a hard choice for me. I thought a lot about it. There's stuff in both of these episodes I really like, but I think I'm going to play uh, Spider's Advocate here. I'm going to go with Planet of the Spiders. All right. I think... You have chosen the wrong spider as your advocate. I choose the runaway bride. To be fair, mine has like way more spiders. True. Also, they are real spiders. Like she's <laughs> yeah. she's kind of like a spine spine tour. Okay, I don't know what that's supposed <laughs> like to be. Like a centaur spider. But let's move on <laughs> to the dilemma. No, it's a fair point. Mine has more arachnophobia in it. That is a fair but terrible point. <laughs> I think Planet of the Spiders is inarguably more important to the actual Doctor Who series. It nailed down what regeneration is. You know, before this, we kind of like we're floating in the ether. We're like, yeah, the Doctor can 
can change, but what does that actually mean? What's going on? This one firmly says, this is what's going to happen. This is how we're going to get to 50 years. But that was their, their, their thesis, by the way. <laughs> they were like, we can make this run for 50 years. I also think this one might end up being quite a bit of a debate, but I, I, I like Sarah Jane a lot more than Donna, especially in these, in these stories. I think Sarah Jane has some really interesting things to do, and I find Donna very grating. I think that although I, I like David Tennant's performance a lot more than I like John Pertwee's, I think that the actual story, even though there's some fudging there, there's some bullshit, the idea that... You know, this is actually a story where the doctor consciously chooses that he will sacrifice himself for the the greater good is a, is a lot more compelling than ultimately just the doctor is kind of forced into this situation. You know, it ends up being sort of a mini dilemma episode at the end where, he, you know, he can either let the Ragnos live or kill them. All right. So now to refute all of your horrible, horrible points. <laughs> It is never a dilemma for the doctor to choose whether or not to imperil or sacrifice himself in a story. He will always imperil or sacrifice himself. I'm not saying that that's like the core of the story of him making that decision. It, it I was just think still it's, your last point. It no, it was just, I'm saying it's, it's more uh, compelling. All right, I will go in, in order of your three points. What was your first one? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I You're off to a great too. start. Uh, uh, first one was the arachnophobia was better. No, that's stupid. That was the actual <laughs> three points that you made. Um, oh, it was about regeneration. Oh, to your first point regarding that, it made a, uh, a clear template for regeneration and sort of Time Lord rules and uh, established more canon for the show. This is, again, a principle that would lead every classic winning over almost every new who. It has a tremendous advantage in taking place some 30 years prior. But what precedent would you say was even attempted in Runaway Bride? First one-off companion. Okay, that's fair. And also, while it does clarify somewhat regeneration, it uses the term regeneration, and it, it's true that there are some details that were left to be debated. It also does some very confusing things with Choji and Kanpo. Is this something Time Lords can do? They can project their next well, incarnation was, you know this time i was watching i was thinking like is that like his watcher and i was gonna say you can't really say that they cleared up regeneration when the fourth doctor the next one has the most baffling regeneration yet but the argument stands because before this every regeneration we've had had been like he's explaining why it's happening in the moment the difference here is that with the third doctor when he dies he actually says not only is this is why this is happening in the moment but this is why it will continue to happen because it's actually a biological function of my people i disagree i think it was just one more incremental and equally confused steps as the previous but i think comparing that to actually what you're saying which is that one-off companions is more important uh, I, I disagree. Well, no, again, it's not that it's more important. It's that classic inherently has a huge advantage on that. It's a phony point to say the older episode had the larger impact and changed the canon of the show more. Of course it did. It's had a longer trajectory since then. Okay, so move on to the next point. Second point, the most superfluous perhaps of all three. Uh, you obviously are biased against Donna, <laughs> but ignoring that aspect of I it. I did say I enjoy this episode despite her. Yeah. Ignoring your bias against Donna, when you compare their stories in the episode, Sarah Jane has a garbage story in Planet of the Spiders. I mean, just think about what, what, what happens to her in the chase. 
Yeah, that's fair. She gets left behind. Running through that chase. I'm so important in the chase. I'm relaxing the story. Don't don't bring up the chase. Stiff arm down. Don't bring up the chase at all. That didn't happen. And then what are the consequences of her getting cut out of that chase? Nothing. Because she didn't matter in that part of the story to begin with. Just don't bring up the chase. (laughs) And if you want to throw shit at me for the chase, I'll accept everything that you want to say about it. Here's the thing. The chase is terrible, right? It's Mm. a, a massive boondoggle, a huge waste of time. But honestly, there are probably two and a half parts worth of story that should just get cut out of this thing. Yeah. I, uh, it Tommy's should not, whole story should is not garbage. Be, I didn't want to bring this up because <laughs> I, I, don't, I disagree with you. I think that Sarah Jane actually has a pretty decent story when she's not being literally left behind. I, I like the idea that she's the, like the one who goes to the planet first, that she's sort of figuring things out. She's helping the doctor when he's like mortally wounded both times. She fails to, even in that situation. She gets captured instead of but, helping the but doctor. But she gets the thing out of the TARDIS so that the other guys yes, can get Yes, yeah. It. She moves it a couple of feet before she goes back to being useless again. They waylay her every time she's about to do anything in this story. Also, if you actually look at the beginning of the story... It's one of those situations where her and the doctor are investigating two different things that turn out to be the same thing. Yeah. So she gets a lot of great story when she goes to the monastery for the first time and is like hanging out with Mike. What does that accomplish though? Because then she goes back to the doctor afterwards, after the chase. he's already uncovered all that information independently. No, all he's uncovered is that, you know, he's got a metabolist crystal. I almost called it a metabolist crystal. (laughs) Fuck you, Matt Smith. But again, what does that actually end up accomplishing because she's the one who tells him they're the ones who are bringing these spiders in but it doesn't matter because lepton ends up coming to them this is after this is after the chase wait no it's not lepton takes the crystal Uh. and then she says uh you know i've been at this uh this thing we have to go investigate it and then they go to the monastery to try and find lepton remember there's that whole bit about lepton's in the basement Uh. with that weird flashing thing between her and tommy yes it's quite terrible uh yeah Tommy is not that great either. Tommy is so bad. He's such a, a terribly done part of this. And also, Sarah has a wonderful moment where she goes, you're normal now. <laughs> yeah. You're not all retarded anymore. Yeah, yeah. She's not too kind to him. There's also a really weird moment where when she first meets him, she does that thing that you do where you like kind of talk like it's a, you're talking to a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she just talks totally normally, and but she's talking to a child and she hands him his brooch. And then Mike Yates says shameless use of your feminine wiles is very odd yeah i guess it's supposed to be dry humor but it was strange i just took it as like who are the people he's flirting with (laughs) (laughs) they give him brooches but i would say donna is kind of a tag along for rose in this story all the the things that the people say about martha are really focused on donna in this episode i completely disagree i think martha gets it so much worse because the doctor actually puts Rose out of his mind in the story. You even talked about how invested he becomes in getting Donna to her wedding. Yeah, I do like that. And But I think that's just the doctor being the doctor. I think he would do that for anybody. Of, I mean, of course, that's, that's who the doctor is. That's part of what makes the show good. But she has a story in this that's compelling. I mean, again, you brought up that moment when she's there and starting to process the insane trauma of realizing Lance was poisoning her all these months. She has an actual serious emotional journey that she goes through in this. Whereas Sarah Jane runs around between two office buildings. Both companions get to have iconic cries. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sarah Jane has a good couple of seconds at the very end. I think you're you're over exaggerating there. I think that she's got a pretty entertaining story until she gets 
kicked aside into the river, maybe. <laughs> Honestly, Planet of the Spiders is a ton of great concepts mired in lots and lots of either poor or superfluous story. There's so much circuitous, unnecessary detail. I mean, oh my God, Tommy steals the blue crystal from the windowsill like a pie cooling <laughs> in a cartoon. It's yeah. so goofy. Okay, number one problem, I think, with uh, Runaway Brides, not even with Donna. The second half just feels muddled to me. I always forget, before you watched this episode this most recent time, did you did you have any recollection of how Donna got to the TARDIS or like really what the Rachnos were doing? Yes. Because I never, I don't know what it is about the Rachnos plot, but I just, I never get that invested in it. I like when the doctor gets like his retribution against them. I'll say, I, I quite like the Rachnos plot. I like that they were there at the, you know, inception of the earth and everything. I mean, I think the, you know, the whole Huon particles thing is a pretty simple device, but I think it in no way obstructs the plot and it all works and adds up quite nicely. And I really like the moment where the doctor pulls the reverse on it and says, you know, if it was able to pull Donna into the TARDIS, then I'll reverse the polarity of the neutron flow <laughs> and I'll pull the TARDIS around. Yeah, that's, that's a great little moment. Yeah. And uh, you don't get that without the Huon particles as a base for that story. I do think that there's too many parts in Plane of the Spiders, but if you dil dilute it down. If you, to, yeah, if you could get rid of some parts, it would be really good. The actual spider story, I actually really enjoy. I like the idea that they were just spiders on a human spaceship. They mutated in these caves. And now that they are, they're like become like these psychic powerhouses, they're basically trying to make it so all the universe has one thought and it's all the great ones. All praise to the great one. <laughs> yeah, I'm, it's true. I'm not praising to the great ones. I'm, I'm making a terrible mistake. No, if you separate that statement a little bit more, I like the premise of the spiders quite a bit. But you don't like their I their don't plot. like their story. I don't actually think, I, mean, I honestly think the premise is even pretty flawed because once you add the humans into the mix, if all the humans had died in the crash, but spiders had survived, I think it would make more sense. What the hell happened to those humans? Why is their society even <laughs> remotely like that? Why are they so stupid? Maybe it's a, a side effect of them living so close to the crystals. I don't know. But they should be made smarter. No, Tommy got does, made smarter. It does the opposite. Tommy got made smarter. He's an anomaly. <laughs> He's an anomaly. He is an anomaly. <laughs> He's all normal now, though. <laughs> normal anomaly. I think you, you, if you check the humans out there, I really like the spider premise. I actually really hate that they do a kind of neat thing where there's this one sort of rogue spider that's teaming up with leptin and then that story just fizzles out like crap six parts <laughs> <laughs> you know those those kind of things are indefensible it's very padded episode yeah um ultimately you know there's there's some some stuff i really like in playing of the spiders i love choji i think i love him a lot more than you do i i love you know it's a genuine character twist and you don't get the i mean usually you get those with like the villain and doctor who but you never really get those that much in especially early Doctor Who they didn't do it's like they were afraid to dive into Time Lord lore yeah I would do the same thing with Choji premise I like execution falls apart for me it's yeah it's really weird how they have him like be a watcher beforehand yeah totally unnecessary I guess you need it if you need more parts randomly <laughs> I totally forgot that Kanpo was a component well it also bothers me because Choji or potentially Kanpo one of them is running this place mm -hmm. and they're not in there for like two parts yeah. And everything's going to shit around them. <laughs> and nobody knocked on their door that whole time. Like the reality of that monastery is so fucked. 
maybe, you know, they were getting weaker. They're getting old. They were sleepy a lot. Choji was, he was hot and popping, man. (laughs) Yeah, but it's confusing. Like, is he like his future self or is he just, he's projecting his future regeneration with still his withered body? I tell you, I don't have a goddamn clue (laughs) because that did not continue on in future regenerations. Yeah, that's all fair. Uh, I think while there is some stuff that I really enjoy in Plane of the Spiders, it's not a better episode than Runaway Bride. But wait, we have to have a 12-minute chase in this dilemma first. (laughs) (laughs) Here, let me get in the tiny little uh, uh, helicopter. Okay, I'll go after you in a a hover car. (laughs) And then we'll switch. You remember the part where they switch for no fucking reason? It's a very critical moment. Just so that they can have that moment where the Who-mobile flies. Just have have him get in the Who-mobile at the beginning. Yeah, make it a five-minute chase. Honestly... Like, the, the fact that Lupton saw a bunch of vehicles and was like, I'll take the one that doesn't look like it's a vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, I accept uh, your uh, shriveled defeat. <laughs> <laughs> I will not praise the great one. I was thinking about, like, getting a bunch of, like, uh, of those rubber spiders and, like, just in the middle of the dilemma, throwing them at you to distract you. That might have worked. Yeah. Yeah. At least for, like, a second. And it probably would have ruined some of the sound. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because I would just end up hitting your mic. And probably my, yeah, and probably your own mic as well. So, And that's the end of our dilemma this week. But don't go yet. We've got a bonus from Big Finish, a two-parter from the new Eighth Doctor Adventures, The Eight Truths and World Wide Web. As our name suggests, there are eight aspects to the truth. The first is simple, that humankind must embrace its destiny and move towards it. Though we will all be moving in the same direction, We must all take the decision to do so for ourselves. Oh, yeah. You understand? Absolutely. Meet the Eightfold Truth, a new cult on the rise that believes that Armageddon is coming in the form of a rebel sun. Sounds silly enough until the new star arrives in Earth's orbit. With the cult growing explosively, the Eighth Doctor and Lucy fight to learn the real truth, that the Eight Legs have returned from Metabilis to seek their revenge. So, Edward... What do you think of the eight truths slash worldwide web? So I'm actually very curious to hear what you think, because when I'd heard these before, I liked them a lot. And then hearing it again, I still like this story, but I liked it a little bit less this time. Yeah, this is the third finale. Yes, yes the third yeah. finale of the, the Eighth Doctor Adventures, where they're still doing that New Who replication. They're trying to replicate what a, a series of new who feels like but this one of. has a little bit of an odd format it kind of does a classic format almost because it has there this is a is a two-parter but the actual episodes are also in two parts yes very strange yeah well i think in like towards series three they just decided you know what, we're going to go back to essentially the same length of a normal four-parter episode because a lot of series three was two-parter episodes but this is i think easily the weakest yeah i agree with that for sure i mean some of that i I would say that some on the ground just because the other ones are so great. But yeah, this one, I think some of it has to do with when I'd heard all these stories originally, I heard them in the wrong order, basically. I had I knew a decent amount about the Planet of the Spiders, but I heard this, then I saw Planet of the Spiders. Okay. And then this time, uh, experiencing them again, I watched them in the other order, and it seemed way too obvious what was happening. Once you hear a spider voice, yeah, the mystery is gone. It seemed like zero suspense for like all of eight truths i do think that like this is one of those things that big finish is really good at is they don't do what say Stephen moffat does where when he brings the cybermen back he gives them a new plot that they've never done before they take an old plot 
and they rework it in a way to make sense in the new world that they're working with. So I like the idea that like the whole psychic thing has transitioned into this like Scientology metaphor. Yes, it is very Scientology. Like, metaphor is almost being generous. There's a character who's like the head of it named Clark Gooden. And I thought they should have just named him like Melhon Rubbard or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's as much of a metaphor as, say, like, The Master. The movie, The Master, oh, okay. not the I character. Like, I've <laughs> lost the thread, clearly. <laughs> yeah, where it's, it's, it's Scientology, just the name has changed. Yeah. Uh, I love the idea, the premise that the leader, the, uh, Melron. Yes, Melron. <laughs> he's telling all this, like, bullshit. A rebel son is going to come. The number eight's important. They've got, you know, they've got eight truths, yes, right? Yes, yeah. And he's got all these followers and then the shit starts to happen. And then he just goes, yeah, I made all that shit up. Yeah, I was like, I didn't, uh, I wasn't planning on this part. Uh, this doesn't work out so hot for me, actually. The mythology, the truth, the rebel son, the chosen one, all of it made up. Look, I admit I did enjoy the power, but you should have seen these people before. The course made them happy. There's an interesting moment uh, fairly early on. You know, Lucy runs into Karen, who supposedly at this point used to work for the headhunter of course we find out later still is working for the headhunter yeah we should probably say before we get too too deep in uh you know we wouldn't recommend jumping into this story if you want to listen to the new eighth doctor adventures start at the beginning yeah but they, they play out in order very well if you are a dummy and you're not doing that these characters are recurring characters in this storyline yeah and there'll be some sort of inherent spoilers of previous uh, new eighth doctor adventures just based on who's alive and shit but we'll we'll try to not do more than that <laughs> So yeah, Lucy runs into Karen, who ostensibly has stopped working for the headhunter, but is actually still working for the headhunter, we find out later. And she takes her to the Center for the Eight Truths. Are we here? Yeah. Isn't this the BBC? It was the old television center. We bought it three years ago. It's now our center of balance. Come on. And I'm wondering, is that supposed to be some like really low-key slam on the BBC? I was wondering the same thing. I really couldn't tell. It also could just be because I think this was around the time that they shut down the, the television center. Okay. So they're just trying to say like, well, you know, it, it's funny. You know, it's relevant because those are apartments now. Is that true? They're apartments? Yeah. I didn't know that. I knew it was no longer the BBC. But I kept thinking like, are they trying to say it's like a a cult? Like a evil cult? <laughs> that, that mind washes people with crystals. Yeah. <laughs> Crystal meth though is in reality. Oh, yeah. It's kind of a weird story that Lucy has in this because she's such a strong-willed companion. If it weren't for the whole psychic influence thing, I don't think I'd be able to buy a story that had her getting absorbed into this kind of cult. She even has an exchange where she like tells them, you know. Now, Lucy, what I detect in you is a tension between two... Look, before you start, I think I know enough about myself to know that you're not... Um, Are you all right, Lucy? I'm fine. Probably just a bit hungry. But yes, you're not going to draw me into joining your little group, okay? But you kind of hear in that moment, she starts to sort of lose her resolve as they keep talking to her. And then it cuts back a minute later, and she's breaking down and saying, Do you really think he's been manipulating me all this time? You practically said as much yourself. I suppose I did. <laughs> They've turned her and the doctor like against each other, basically. So there's like a time jump, I think, between part one and part two, where... Lucy gets absorbed into the cult and then she gets like taken over by one of the spiders and she's the chosen one or whatever. And now she's essentially the leader of this group so that we jump to like 23 days later. Hey, <laughs> it's almost yeah, a movie. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's, it's clearly cool. worth pointing out. <laughs> I thought it was very strange that the doctor didn't like make it a personal mission to like save her. Yeah. So two points to that, right? The time jump is probably my favorite part of the story because it lets the story take on this scope that normally the doctor wouldn't allow. Normally he would have crushed the alien menace in that period. But I agree. Like, I think it really hinders the story that the doctor and Lucy are kept apart so much and Lucy doesn't have her personality for much of it. I agree. I wonder if she had like some point where she was like, I, I would love to play a bad guy in one episode because she essentially disappears yeah, and to be the antagonist. To Sheridan Smith's credit, she's very good. I was really grateful to have the scenes where Lucy is within her own mind still fighting against the Great One. That was kind of cool. Yeah, and we get to hear her, her spunk and her personality still alive. I love her spunk. Her spunk. Not as good as the Eighth Doctor's spunk, but <laughs> pretty good. It's just you, all alone. You and this annoying voice in your head. Shut up! I thought you were going to have a rest. You've been working ever so hard at keeping me shut away in a little corner of my brain, out of harm's way. It, it is one of those big Russell T. Davies kind of finales where it's all on Earth, modern day Earth, and it's this huge invasion, right? And a lot of episodes like that do, you know, they'll cut to what's that woman who's the, the telecaster in every episode of Russell T. Davies. You know oh, what I'm talking God, about? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, I don't really know her name. You know, they'll do things like that to make it feel global. There was a very strange moment in this where their idea of doing that is that the doctor and like the two people he's working with, the scientist and Karen at the moment, I think, are just going through a drive through at Burger King. Oh my gosh. Can I take your order, please? What do you want? Three large cheeseburger meals with cola, please. Diet for me. And like, you know, the, the, the drive through person at the end says, all praise to the great one. That is the most surreal moment. It's just the doctor, uh, a journalist and a cult leader going to a drive through in the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> and it, the scene is done in a way where like they're having a long conversation in the car. And then Paul McGann just has a pause and says, I'll have three hamburgers and <laughs> fries. It was very strange. That Yeah, that moment really is fucked up. <laughs> And then it does. they just sort of drive away. It's just like a place to put the scene. Yeah. It's it, weird. It, it would have made more sense if like, you know, the, the the people inside who are eating their burgers all come out and they're like, these guys are heretics. But no. Nope, just drives off. Eight <laughs> <laughs> gives one of the most wishy-washy explanations pretty much in the whole show of like why he can't time travel in a certain situation. He's talking to Kelly, the journalist who's investigating the cult, and he travels back in his own time stream to show her that he can time travel. Yeah, he does like a super version of the Smith and Jones kind of thing. Yeah. And then she goes, okay, why? Well, let's time travel then to fix this. And then he's just like, oh, I, I can't because I, I can't explain it. Doing what I just did is dodgy enough. Short hops are manageable. Anything bigger and I could end up on the other side of the universe. Anyway, I only did this because I needed to convince you. And we can't afford to waste any more time. Hey, can we go back and see the Kennedy assassination? No, 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 emphatically not. We've got work to do. And, well, we've got work to do. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you just did the thing that you, you're saying you can't do. But that was for showmanship. <laughs> I wish you'd said that. I can only do it to just sort of fop around. <laughs> uh, I was thinking Metabilis 3 has a bad history of shitty queens. Is it not just supposed to be the same one? Maybe it is, but I would have to think that after the events of Planet of the Spiders, they, you know, usurped her 
the queen was looking working with Sarah Jane Smith. She like okay. backstabbed everybody. And then in this one, the queen's plan is to basically not only take over the the thoughts of all the humans, but also all of her spider kin. Do they just seem like the I don't know elect shitty queens? Whatever they do with their queens. Yeah. Well, so uh, let me ask you. I guess arguably the the core goal of this episode was sort of reviving the the spiders from Metabulous Three because. It's basically, really listening to it again, it's a sequel to Planet of the Spiders. It really is. How did you, how successful did you feel it was in doing that? I do think that the spiders are feel more dangerous in this one than they do in Planet of the Spiders. Although I, I, I like Metabilis just because I, I think I like the name. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I ever felt a need to have the spiders come back. Yeah, I felt like it was weird because I agree. I think it did a really good job with the spiders. And I think in general, the story is pretty good. It's just a... Yeah, it's sort of lacking charisma, this story. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way of putting it. And that is so atypical of this part of Big Finish. Basically every other run of the mill monster of the week story is just dripping with charm. Now that we have discussed the eight truths and World Wide Web, it's time for some trivia. Karen was actually recast for this story. Originally she was played by Louise Fullerton, but Carrie Godleman took over for this episode yeah i didn't notice but it, it had been a while i feel like since she was in there yeah uh, the last episode she had appeared in because she's not in orbis the yeah. headhunter is in orbis but karen appears in grand theft's cosmos okay i didn't actually find out why she was recast i couldn't find that information anywhere anti-semitism it doesn't sound like the actress is dead or anything dead but... <laughs> died of anti-semitism and then they needed somebody a bit more godly, man. Because <laughs> her name is Godleman. In case you I was going to say, you better restate that because I don't think anyone pays that much attention. When in the spider heaven, Lucy recognizes a trell that has arrived. This species was first introduced in the previous Eighth Doctor Adventure finale two-parter, Sisters of the Flame and Vengeance of Morbius. Vengeance of Morbius, which is sick awesome. It's really good. has a great ending to it. Yeah, Morbius is a character you do want to see more of. Yes, yeah. We will say no more except go listen to it. We will say no Morbius. (laughs) The Doctor refers to the Stellar Manipulator as being isomorphically controlled. He even goes as far as saying that he's dealt with similar systems before. This would be directly contradicted by the 11th Doctor in A Christmas Carol, who claimed that isometric controls were impossible. (laughs) Shit. It's a great little moment if you remember that. The Eight Legs had returned once before in a short story in a collection called More Short Trips. This short story was written by Gareth Roberts and was called Return of the Spiders. In it, they face off against the Fourth Doctor, Romana II, and K-9. Well, that sounds pretty cool. This brings us to the end of another episode of The Twin Dilemma. This week, proving itself to be so much more arachnophobic, spiders are bigger in this one. Can't deny that. <laughs> a spider is bigger in this one. <laughs> bigger uh more female more well actually i think every spider that we run into in both these episodes is female yes but less breasts yeah that's true but i was just like Take wondering, that. i should have brought that up in the dilemma how do the eight legs reproduce because we never meet a male spider or at least they all just sound like women they just got this bunch got a bunch of bitch voices that could be that makes them much less scary the male ones are like ah, i'm emasculated by the, the comments on this podcast <laughs> Too bad they're not the eight dicks. That's a different planet. Yeah. Planet of the boys. I have been Fenric Lamar. 
And I have been Edward Grove. Please tune in next week for our second episode of our Trilogy of Fear. Boo. (laughs) Oh, no. See you next time. Bye, everybody. Our theme next week, claustrophobia. Small finish. We love dumb shit.